and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Long Short. We hope you're doing well at this time. Since the beginning of this year, 5,000 of you have listened to The Long Short with a growing number of subscribers every week. So many thanks to all of you for your support. We are truly humbled. And next week, we'll see the return of fresh new episodes of The Long Short, and we look forward to having these drop. But in the meantime, our fantastic producer of The Long Short, Katerina Jordo, has put together a very special episode that offers a roundup of some of the most listened to podcast episodes since the beginning of the year. So far, we've heard the latest views on crypto assets from prominent market insiders, why hedge funds are entering the trade finance market, how inflation is impacting the everyday person, and what we should be investing in to counter high inflation. We've also spoken to Robin Grew, COO of Man Group, who offered her views on the importance of DE&I, and Bill Kelly, CEO of Kaya, who spoke to us about the importance of educating the world about alternative investments. We do hope you enjoy these reposts and we look forward to speaking to you again on The Long Short next week. Just thinking about you know, crypto assets and, and, and performance of crypto assets over the past year, I guess when, when people talk about cryptocurrency, um, most people will recognize Bitcoin and arguably that you know, was pretty much where all the talk was about last year was around Bitcoin and the performance of Bitcoin. This year, I've noticed commentators are talking a lot about the merits of Ethereum. Um, So what do you think is likely to be the cryptocurrency that everyone's going to be talking about, say, 12 months from now? Is it going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be Ethereum? Is it going to be something else? It's a good question, Tom. I think the uh, first of all, let's start with Ethereum. Uh, as you, I mean, obviously, Bitcoin is by far the biggest crypto asset out there, followed by Ethereum. Uh, I think it's uh, 2022 will be very critical year for Ethereum. I would argue it's a break or make year for Ethereum. I mean, to put things in perspective, in the past year, in 2021, uh, you know, uh, catalyzed by you know the push towards Ethereum 2.0 and also some changes that happened to Ethereum. One of them called what we call the EIP 1559, which had made changes to the burn mechanism of Ethereum. The price went from all the way from $750 to to $4,800 at its peak. Uh, but there's obviously some downsides with Ethereum. One of them are its gas fees. Last year, for example, the gas fees varied uh, from all the way from $4 to all the way to $70 for a single transaction, which makes Ethereum transactions way more expensive than the legacy banking infrastructure, for example. Uh, The big difference, though, now, Tom, is unlike previous years, there are other platforms, what we call layer one solutions in the market that, that exist. Uh, you know, anything from uh, from Algorand and Avalanche to Tezos and Solana and many, many, many others. And I think what's going to be interesting is that 
unless Ethereum is able to really get it on the roadmap pretty quickly, make sure it delivers on its changes on its promise, I think we may have uh, the patience that a lot of the crypto ecosystem has had, a lot of developers may have had, uh, may start shifting towards some of the other platforms. And still, Ethereum is by far the dominant player. I mean, to give you one example, when it comes to non-fungible tokens, NFTs, over 90% of them are happening right now on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, but, you know, so I, I'll be one, one thing I'll be watching for the year to come is really some of these other layer one solutions. Uh, many of them that are getting traction, uh, like the ones I mentioned, Avalanche, Algorand, Solana, and many, many others uh, who are really have interesting value propositions, uh, not only on the speed perspective, uh, not only on, on the scalability perspective, but also on the fee perspective. And that is a big thing to watch uh, from, from a 2022 perspective. just had the one year anniversary of GameStop, uh, which was obviously, uh, you know, caught fire, caught the media attention by storm a year ago. And what we're seeing on the tail end of that is, is really, you know, as a consequence of lockdowns and maybe people turning to day trading as a way to supplement their incomes. We now have a, a generation of people who have entered the stock market in their millions that, that might otherwise have not have. But where this changes from previous generations is that, you, you know, you may have a situation where someone buys a bond when their, their child is born or that that person, the first shares they get are in the company they worked at. These days, you get a, we've got a generation of young people who have no concept of uh, something like wine or, or fine art being used as an asset class and maybe have never owned a share in a company but are trading NFTs or are involved in the crypto space. And, and so in some ways, the next generation of, of day traders or you know, uh, the retail market are more comfortable in the alt space than in traditional markets. And, and that's, that's fascinating from the point of view of, you know, raising awareness and, and, and opening a window into greater understanding of uh, the, the broad universe of alts. Do you, do you see this as, as an opportunity in that space? And as you say, it may well be the future anyway. Yeah, so th there's a lot there, Drew. And, and I think it's uh, it's uh, maybe a little bit of a, a blessing, but with a uh, with a, a very strong flash and yellow light. The blessing part is that I think the Robin Hoods and the GameStops and uh, gamification and COVID have all conspired to get a lot of folks involved in this market that never naturally would have. And I think we should embrace that because I think that you gotta be in the game to understand it. But then I do worry about the intersection of investing and gamification. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the fad was when I was growing up, but maybe it was a type of jeans or a sneakers or an eight track cassette that you were willing to pay up uh, for and that established sort of your street cred. Now street cred is happening in the metaverse. And if somebody wants to go and buy something uh, to dress up their avatar, because that's sort of their modern day of an eight track cassette uh, thing, I'm 100% fine with that and I totally get it. But the moment they start confusing that with investing, you've crossed a bit of a Rubicon and I, I think you gotta understand what that means. And, and two cases I'll cite. One is uh, just about uh, a year or so ago, I think it's about this time in, uh, in 21, there was an artist named Beeple uh, who's still alive. And uh, somebody created this, this big compilation of all his works and sold it uh, as an NFT through Sotheby's. 
And if you add up all the valuations, uh, and I think it was a big holder in Singapore, it came out to be somewhere around $69 million. And it was like, oh my God, the NFT has arrived. I use this as a punchline for a lot of public speaking I do. And if you go and look at people, that value, that NFT is driven by a, a security token called B20. And if you look at the B20 security token in March of last year at the height of the $69 million trade, it was trading around $26, $27 a unit. If you go out and look at that today, and any of your listeners can Google, and I think even if somebody listens to this a year from now, it's going to be unchanged. That NFT is tracking it less than a buck. And it's been flatlined for the last several quarters. So it, it peaked in March and it went straight down and has been submerged at 75 cents a token. Now, if I bought a piece of, of that because I wanted to brag about it and dress my avatar up with it, home run. But if I put 20% of my 401k in there, I'm screwed. Uh, so, so that's one point. And then secondly, and I, I, Tom, you probably saw my letter to my members. I referenced this. At, the uh, elephant in the room. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Great thank you. So, room, yeah. Yeah, so my son, Will, got this Oculus headset for Christmas and he's saying, try it on, try it on. And I eventually did. And, and typical of when uh, old people take on new technology, I get so wrapped up in the realness of it that I fell over. I thought I had a concussion and, uh, and went, had to rule that out. But, but it led to a whole discussion on this. And the other point I was going to raise is that in, in a metaverse called Sandbox, Somebody recently paid $650,000 for a virtual yacht. And as a former boat owner myself, as the old saying goes, the two best days in the boat owner's life is the day the boat owner buys the boat and the day he sells. 100% yeah. true for me as a, as a boat owner in the real world. So in the metaverse, no doubt that that person was very proud to write a $650,000 check. I just hope he doesn't get beepled on the back end when he finds that NFT is below water along with the savings and the virtual yacht purchased. We've successfully outlined the problem. Uh, buying power is down, costs are up across the board. So let's talk about remedies. Uh, from a retail perspective's point of view, uh, where should people really be putting their money during these periods of higher inflation? Okay, so I, I'll, I'll have to disappoint you a, a little bit here because I'll get in trouble with my compliance department if I start uh, giving investment advice. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but what I can do is tell you uh, what has factually performed well historically uh, in, in inflationary regimes. Um, now, as I say, we, we wrote this big paper with Professor Cam Harvey's uh, a storied academic out in out in America on historic inflation regimes, looking at the past hundred years across the US, UK and Japan um, and had a number of findings. But I'll just point to three things that we found have consistently worked really well. And um, the first is commodities. Uh, in a way, you would expect that because commodities go into the goods that make up uh, the CPI basket. But the uh, extent of that positive performance did surprise us. So in the eight US inflation regimes, commodities in aggregates, this is, this is everything from metals to energies to wheat, etc., uh, run at a 14% real CAGR, so CAGR adjusting for inflation, with a 100% hit rate. Uh, now within commodities, uh, industrials and energies segments perform best, uh, and anything you can eat 
so agriculturals uh, and livestock, etc., still good, but but slightly worse. And that we think is politicians uh, learning the lesson from Marie Antoinette: don't mess with food prices uh, if you want to keep your heads. Metaphorically speaking, we hope. Uh, second thing, uh, again, kind of obvious, but good to have the numbers on it: uh, tips or um, inflation-protected bonds also perform pretty well. I mean, not they're not going to knock the lights up, but they're going to give you about 2% real uh, annualised. Um, we do need to make the point this time around, though, that tips yields today, 10-year tips yield is deeply negative as a starting point in this inflationary regime, which was not the case uh, historically. So we just, we just do need to adjust for that in our thinking. Will it provide the same level of protection today as it has historically? Um, and finally, final thing is trend strategies across all segments of the market. So we constructed uh, a trend strategy which uh, goes across bonds, FX, equities and commodities uh, at a 15% vol, so quite high volatility. That gives you a real CAGR of 25%, again, with 100% uh, positive hit rate across the eight regimes we identified uh, in the US. And the the qualitative rationale, we think, behind those uh, empirical results for trend, because I know you'll, you'll probably be thinking, yeah, you would say that your man group, you know, you love trend to the man with the hammer. Every problem looks like a nail. But it does have a qualitative backing as well as uh, empirical evidence, which is that we find that in the inflation regime, it's, it is a volatile time for any one, one security and one asset class individually. But the patterns that we see uh, in an inflation regime do tend to persist. So, for instance, seeing within commodities, seeing industrial metals outperforming uh, agricultural commodities, that tend there tends to be not much volatility in terms of that relationship moving through the inflation regime. And inflation regimes tend to be relatively long, so almost two years uh, on average. And most trend strategies obviously look back as uh, 12 months or so, so that there's that time for those those patterns to emerge. So those are three things which historically uh, have performed relatively well uh, in inflationary regimes. The Alternative Credit Council is pleased to announce the return of our annual Global Summit, which will take place in London on Tuesday, 7th of June, 2022. The past two years have demonstrated the value of real-time market intelligence and access to industry networks. Now in its fifth year, the summit event will convene LPs, GPs and industry specialists from across the globe and showcase the full breadth of the asset class. Throughout the day, discussions will focus on identifying the key strategic challenges facing private credit managers and what trends are shaping its growth internationally. Speakers will delve into key trends in product design, investor preferences, and how private credit is contributing to decarbonization. Register today on the ACC website to hear the discussions, network with peers, and to join the evening reception. And you, you mentioned data there, and, and I think it's a key part of the issue that ESG, or, or the it's a key uh, phase in the evolution of ESG in our industry of, of having that data come through, it, not just because we simply weren't making, we weren't, weren't creating data sets around these issues in the past, and this goes across the EDS and the G. And so that is something that is an, an evolving and an ongoing issue for many firms in many ways. And, and as you say, it, it is really important to be able to hold yourself to account and have those KPIs 
but at the same time not sort of making yourself a hostage to fortune in the sense and um, we did some work last year around this and we spoke to several recruiters who were describing how they were told um you know this is our strategy for improving diversity please can you bring us xyz candidates we really want to broaden our our search and they were coming back and saying you know or we we we're struggling or we can't and and they were saying well we have this standard we must keep and so it was about creating reasonable uh, milestones for change that are not lax and you're not letting yourself off the hook as a firm but at the same time not setting something that will inevitably come back to bite you so in terms of how man group is approaching this i know you guys love data more than most <laughs> Yes, so we how, do. <laughs> so how are you guys approaching this? Could you give us just a little flavor of, you know, where you do see some hard lines that can be set? Yes, I I think you're true. I think you're spot on. I think that data keeps and, and, and metrics enables all of us to keep to hold ourselves accountable on progress. I think it's a progress piece uh, that, that is important. It's journey that we're on and absolutes are important you know it, it's not that you can set some unattainable goal and say yeah but we are trying to move a little bit towards it i think you've got to try and push for the reality of your metrics to say this is what we are aiming to and if we don't achieve our targets i think we have to understand why we haven't achieved targets so i think there is a discussion there as you know man group have signed the women in finance charter setting a target for the number of women in senior management it was um 2025 percent in 2020 which we reached it's 27 and a half percent by the end of 2022 and it's 30 percent by the end of 2024 we're at 26 percent right now you see we do know our data um the types of goals that you know these types of goals show not just the outside world they, they show the inside world our employees that we're committed to change um and when you think about that, if you add that commitment into initiatives and programs, we can create a workplace where our diverse staff can see the journey for themselves, that we're transparent about the journey, that we're transparent about the, the hurdles, um, we're transparent about um, why it is we can succeed in some areas more easily than others. Those metrics and goals are indicative of a journey. And it means we have to talk about it. We talk about it in the in in the qualitative sense, but we talk about it in a quantitative sense. And that, as asset managers, is our bread and butter. We talk about numbers all day long. We shouldn't avoid numbers here. Um, we just have to be realistic, but we have to push ourselves. I often say we, as asset managers, pride ourselves on solving really difficult questions and queries and investment solutions for our clients. That's what we are here to do. And we have really, really smart and clever, driven people doing that. And if we can achieve answers and solutions for our clients in the investment world, this is another set of problems that we can achieve somehow solutions for. I cannot believe that with the amount of quality individuals we have in financial services and in asset management, we can't make an impact here. And I think we do at MAN, and I think we should as a broader industry group.
Freddie, your report notes that um, hedge funds are entering the venture capital arena at earlier stages. Uh, can you explain to our listeners why that is and how it might help businesses looking for you know, that early capital? The first thing to say is that I do think most of the activity has been focused on the later stage uh, within VC. Um, if you think of this in terms of funding rounds, it probably means round C, round D um, and, and later. Um, what we have seen, I think, is this concept of crossover investing being particularly powerful. And, and I talked about some of those dynamics around the late stage private uh, versus public market valuation discrepancy. So I think that's been a lot of what's driven um, the sort of the first forays of, of hedge funds into private markets. But what we have seen, I think, is as funds have done more private market investments and they've increased their comfort level investing in privates, they've grown their their footprint and, and their, their brand and reputation in the space. Um, we have observed a tendency for some funds to push earlier and say, let's look at the Series B, let's look at the Series A um, and, and expand our, our remit through time. Um, from a business's point of view, um, hedge funds can be a pretty appealing capital partner and I think they have some aspects of differentiation versus the traditional private market investor base. Um, one is capital duration, um, which is to say traditional private markets investors, um, VC, PE, growth equity funds, generally speaking, are structurally required to uh, exit their position once the company goes public. Um, so maybe there's a sort of post-IPO lockup period, but after that, Generally speaking, what they'd be looking to do is return their capital to uh, to, to investors, so sell out of the position. Um, hedge funds obviously have the flexibility to be able to continue to hold those businesses through the IPO and into the public markets. So part of it is the appeal of having investors who are going to uh, invest in private rounds, but perhaps invest more at the IPO and then stay with you through the, 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 the public market phase um, of a business's life, which obviously provides... Uh, a degree of stability to the to the shareholder roster, which is which is appealing. So, it's not reinforcing that view around how hedge funds are becoming more partners in this area, right? So, taking on that alignment and deepening that alignment, rather, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's there's a, a, a couple of other not, uh, dimensions as well. One, I would say, is just the the nature of ownership that hedge funds are looking for, which is generally more passive, actually. Um, so hedge funds tell us we're not looking to take board seats in the way that a VC firm would. We're not looking to uh, impose upon the business our view on how they should run their company, but we're happy to invest with them um, and, and really sort of leave them to it. So particularly for companies that have already taken VC funding and maybe uh, have granted some external investors seats on the board, the, the fact that hedge funds are happy to be passive holders, I think, is, is appealing. Um, but at the same time, I think hedge funds are also still happy to lend expertise where necessary. Um, and often as not, I think that uh, comes in the form of helping to um, almost coach and provide advice to companies on the transition from being a successful business in the private markets to being a successful business on the public markets. Um, and hedge funds, I think, would argue that as longstanding successful public markets investors, they are able to share insights into how uh, public companies should be looking to uh, engage with their investor bases in the most successful ways, help these companies understand 
What are the ratios that um, public markets investors are going to be most focused on? How should you be presenting yourself as a business to the public markets as distinct from when you were a private company? The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.